You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine with your host, Northwestern University internist, Dr. Lee Friedman. How are new developments and technologies impacting the scope and reliability of pre-implantation genetic diagnosis? Joining us to discuss advances in pre-implantation genetic diagnosis is Dr. Anuja Dokras, Medical Director of the In Vitro Fertilization Program at Penn Fertility Care and Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Penn Medicine. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Dokras. Thank you for having me. Oh, it is certainly our pleasure. And this sounds like a very interesting area. Can you tell us when do we think about using pre-implantation genetic diagnosis? In what settings does this come up? So it typically comes up in settings when you have a couple who is trying to get pregnant when either of them carries a gene with a genetic defect. And they may not be affected because they're just the carriers, but when both couples are carrying it, there's a higher likelihood that the offspring or the child may be affected. And if they want to avoid that, then pre-implantation genetic diagnosis is an option for them. The other situations when couples have already had an affected child, mm-hmm. and now the risk and the sibling having it is fairly high, and they don't want to go through another pregnancy with the knowledge that the next child is affected, there's a group that may not opt for termination of pregnancy and hence want the diagnosis prior to implantation and hence the word pre-implantation genetic diagnoses. And then the last group is those who have a chromosomal defect. So these are couples who have a balanced translocation. They are healthy and normal. But again, the child having an unbalanced translocation is high and hence they want to avoid that situation. So it could be both genetic or chromosomal defects that can be screened for. I take it that this is just an option in the context of in vitro fertilization? That's right. So given that the diagnosis is made in an embryo that's between a four to eight cell stage, the couples then have to go through the in vitro fertilization process. So we're not talking yet about harvesting an embryo as it makes its way toward implantation through the fallopian tube. This is all in vitro. That's right. In terms of the people that you said might be candidates, how does one know if they are an asymptomatic carrier of a particular genetic disorder? They may know that because of their family history. Mm -hmm. If they have relatives, cousins, nieces, nephews who are affected and then they themselves get checked for it. The other method would be when a woman goes to her OBGYN in preparation for pregnancy and they are offered a screening panel given their ethnic background or their race and it just gets picked up as part of a screen. Mm -hmm. And then the third group is if they themselves are affected and are not just carriers and then they would know because of their medical illness. Well, that makes very good sense. And do most couples, if they're considering in vitro, have some genetic counseling prior to beginning the process? Not all of them have genetic counseling if they're just doing in vitro. Mm -hmm. But ACOG does recommend a basic panel of screening labs, genetic screen given a patient's ethnic background. So, for example, cystic fibrosis Mm -hmm. comes under a universal screen that you offer to all patients. A number of cases may get picked up when we offer a screen, but I think the majority of patients who come for PGD have a diagnosis made elsewhere 
either because of a family member, either because of having a child affected. And it's only a small percentage that we pick up amongst the group that's going through in vitro for other reasons. Can you describe the actual process? How is this genetic screening done? What happens is we would then stimulate the female partner's ovaries with hormones in order to harvest the eggs, and then the male would give us a sample of sperm, and in the laboratory, the egg and the sperm are then combined. And that's day zero, if you will, of the treatment. And on Uh day one, fertilization occurs. On day two, the embryo is typically between a two to four cell stage. And then on day three, the embryo is typically between a six to eight cell stage. It's at that time that we would then remove one cell out of this six to eight cell embryo, and we would then make the chromosomal or the genetic diagnoses over the next 24 hours. So now that takes us to day four. And then on day five, when we have the final result back, we would put the unaffected embryos back into the woman's uterus in order to establish the pregnancy. So it's all done very quickly over a five-day period of time. Right. Now, the couple themselves would go through an initial new patient visit, genetic counseling, and evaluation to make sure there are no other causes of infertility before they start the treatment. And then the woman would go through injectable hormones for about 8 to 12 days. So there is definitely a process prior to those critical five days when the gametes and the embryos are growing in the lab. With the techniques that you have, what type of illnesses? You said chromosomal abnormalities and single gene mutations. Is that what you're... That's right. So typically, when PGD first started, it was for X-linked defects, and it was easier to identify the X and Y chromosomes. And then as we got more sophisticated and with the whole genome mapping available, essentially at this point, any single gene defect that we know the mutation for can be tested down to the single cell level with PGD as well. Mm. And then there's a very small controversial subgroup that asks for PGD just for sexing in order to balance their family. That does happen in a certain, you know, percentage of centers and couples asking for it around the world. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and with me discussing advances in pre-implantation genetic diagnosis is Dr. Anuja Dokras, Medical Director of the In Vitro Fertilization Program at Penn Fertility Care and Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Penn Medicine. Dr. Dokris, this sounds like a wonderful technique. Are there any risks for the fetus in doing this? So right now there is an international consortium that is tracking most of the pregnancies established with pre-implantation genetic diagnoses. The first pregnancy was established in 1990. So we have over a decade's worth or even more than that worth Mm -hmm. of data available so there are over about three to 4,000 children born following pre-implantation genetic diagnosis and screening worldwide. And the report from this registry tells us that there's no real difference in terms of birth defects or congenital anomalies compared to other children born from the routine IVF procedure. But I think we just have to still be cautious 
and follow the data and continue to contribute to this registry so that our patients will have this information available in larger numbers over time. So it sounds like, as far as we know, the risk is very low. Right. Is there a reason this wouldn't be done for all in vitro fertilization embryos? The limitation of PGD is that the diagnosis is based on a single cell, and that's why we cannot get an answer as to is there any genetic defect. I think the answer we get today is, is there a specific genetic defect that I am carrying and is it there in my embryos? Mm -hmm. So we're not there in terms of getting the information about the entire genome. And that's why it's not a screen that's available to everybody because you couldn't do it at that level of accuracy with a single cell. One can look for chromosomes, though, because those are sort of a limited number. And one can just look at the chromosomal makeup in terms of trying to figure out is there a monosomy or trisomy in chromosome 21, 18, 16. And that's referred to as PGS or pre-implantation genetic screening because mm -hmm. now you're just screening and throwing the fishing net out there to see what other defect is available. That hasn't proven to improve the success rate from IVF. It may decrease the miscarriage rates to a certain extent, but it is something that's not supported widely by both the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and then uh, the European counterpart is referred to as ESHRAE. And everybody's been cautious about just screening embryos without having a specific known genetic defect. I suppose like with any test, if your pretest probability is lower, there's more chance for false test results, and that makes sense uh, the way you describe that. Absolutely, and I think that's a good point that you bring up because on day three, you have six to eight cells, and one cell may not be representative of all the remaining cells within the embryo. And as the listeners might be aware, uh, mosaicism is a condition where you could essentially have two different cell lineages. And so your one cell may not be representative of the entire embryo. And I think it's a little early in the technology to then make it available to just everybody. The corollary of that seems to me that there still might be down the road for a given individual the need to do other prenatal testing. Is that correct? Right. So currently, again, most of the reproductive endocrine societies are recommending that the couples have either a CVS, a chorion villa sampling, or an amniocentesis in the late first or early second trimester. And that's a hard one because a number of the couples opt for PGD because they want to avoid that procedure. Those procedures do have a small risk of miscarriage. And if there was a false negative diagnosis, that's a hard one because they really did not want to terminate the pregnancy when it's that further established. So we only find that a proportion of the couples take up the recommendation and actually do the next level of testing. The error rates with PGD, again, coming from this international consortium are somewhere between 2 to 5%. And that's why I think, as clinicians, we continue to recommend doing a chorionvillus sampling or an amniocentesis because that number is still a substantial number given that the diagnosis is based on a single cell. Absolutely. And the potential of missing something could affect a child, obviously, for his or her whole life. Right. Let me ask you a couple of practical questions. Is this something that insurance covers at this point? 
a good question. I think of late, over the last couple of years, we are finding that more insurance companies are covering the pre-implantation genetic diagnosis procedure. The in vitro fertilization, though, that's, I think, the challenge. So if fertility coverage is there, then the PGD is a smaller expense added to it. But if you just don't have infertility coverage to start with, then I think it becomes harder. And we have tried sending letters to the insurance companies to explain the situation. And it's been a sort of 50-50 outcome when that's happened. (laughs) But more and more companies, if they cover infertility, will then go the extra step and cover the PGD aspect of it. Dr. Dokras, we're seeing such an explosion in terms of our understanding of genetics and the human genome. As you look to the future, are there developments that you see coming in your field? Right. So the three things that I do want to mention is we are now starting to biopsy the embryo on day five, which is called the blastocyst stage. And the advantage here is that one can get more cells, probably between six to ten cells, and hence improve the accuracy of the diagnosis. And also the biopsy then is taken from the part which is a trophectoderm and will eventually become placenta. So you're not getting as much embryonic material but more placental material, which in the long run may impact the outcome and time will tell. So that's one exciting aspect where, you know, you can improve the accuracy of the diagnosis. And then in terms of the actual genetic diagnosis, right now it's based on PCR technology where you amplify and look for the specific gene mutation. But a number of centers are trying to establish techniques, two of them. One is using comparative genome hybridization and second using microarrays and SNP technology. And that will then help us to look at all the chromosomes, as I was mentioning earlier, and try to, again, improve the accuracy of the diagnosis. So those, I think, are the exciting things. The challenges still remain limited material and a very short time period in which we want the answer. But I think with the advances occurring at the gene level, we might see some of this very soon in the next couple of years. Well, Dr. Dokras, thank you so much for being our guest this week on Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine and for educating us about this very exciting field of pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Thank you for having me once again, and it was a pleasure. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. To download this program or access ReachMD on demand, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.